Hello, this is Andrew Denary with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space for You podcast. Space for You is designed to tell the stories of the people who make space exploration today more accessible to all. Our guest today is Robert Brumley. Bob is a co-founder and chairman of the Comstar Space Companies, to which he brings extensive executive experience in the management and financing of early stage ventures, particularly in aerospace, telecommunications, and defense. Bob was a Senate-confirmed presidential appointee in the Reagan administration, serving in both terms. During that time, he acted as the executive director of the Commercial Space Working Group of the National Security Council and the Economic Policy Council. He is also a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. In June 2020, Bob and his colleagues at Marble Arch Partners LLC and the executive team at the Laserlight Companies announced the launch of Comstar Space Communications LLC. Comstar intends to deploy the Comstar-1 satellite to cislunar orbit in 2023, serving as a high-capacity data relay satellite in the cislunar service area. Comstar-1 is being designed in cooperation with Talus Helenius Space to serve as a hybrid satellite that's able to receive and relay both radio frequency and laser optic communications, serving demand for data transmission equipment and bi-directional data communications between the Earth and the Moon, for commercial, civil science, and government customers. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bob. It's great to have you on the show. I appreciate the invitation and look forward to it. So uh, organizations, institutions, policymakers, and private companies such as yours speak to the cislunar area in space. The cislunar area is quite vast, so could you define for us what cislunar means to you? Yeah, I think uh, to understand cislunar both in a operational sense and in in what would be a um, something that the average guy on the street can relate to, you have to look at it first as geographic. Okay, so from a geographic standpoint, everyone used to talk about near Earth, meaning Leo, Mio, and Geo, low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, places where the ISS flies around, where our geostationary satellites. Within the last five to ten years particularly on the pressure by commercial, there's been a push out from what is called near Earth into now because of the Artemis program and returning to the moon. And so in understanding the geographic region, so you kind of have a benchmark it, near Earth is still that Leo, Mio, Geo area, but now there's cislunar. And cislunar is technically defined as that space between the Earth and the moon. Uh, and then specifically the part of the moon that we see, the lit side of the moon. On the other side, past the moon is called translunar, or in other words, it's beyond the moon. So generally, it's between the, those two spaces. Now, to really understand it, uh, not only in operational terms, just in basic terms, uh, I always view cislunar as this vast sea of 240,000 miles uh, between the Earth and the uh, the lit side of the moon, for example. And that sea, just by the nature of it being a sea, you're not like on the earth above it or on it, you're actually in it. So consequently, it's a lot like a submarine in a sense, because it's all around you. Uh, and you have to operate uh, your systems and think about it that you're flowing through something to get to somewhere. And that's why this is really an interesting geographic reference because the sea itself is something that then has a lot of reference points that are easy for guys like me to understand. Seas need lighthouses, seas need geographic reference points. They need to make sure you're on course, if you will. 
And we have technology for that in the near Earth. It's called positioning, navigation, and telemetry, uh, PNT, or GPS for the Earth. But you're going to need that kind of guidance in uh, in this cislunar sea. You're also going to need other, not just nav aids, but you're also going to need in other uh, areas that, uh, like rest stops, if you will. In this sense, it would be places where those transiting the cislunar sea can stop. They can stop and fulfill a mission, for example. So then that defines the services that you provide in the cislunar area, which gets to kind of my interest and my company's interest. And that service happens to be either transient services, which are, as I mentioned earlier, moving through the sea to get to your ultimate destination, or else there's supportive services at the destination, which happens to be, in this case, the moon. So the transient services are logistic oriented. They're, for example, navigation, fueling, transportation. Uh, You're going to need to be transported through the sea. So you get into sectors that are developing now. Uh, SpaceX is looking at a lunar insertion vehicle. So is uh, Blue Origin. So is uh, Ariane, which is a French launch system. Then you're looking at supportive services around the moon in the transportation area happens to be the landers. So the landers are sitting, say, on a SpaceX system. Now you have an ecosystem. You have a transportation ecosystem specializing in transiting the sea and then delivering uh, what would be capabilities to rest on the moon. So in our sense, the distance becomes relevant because we're not only uh, interested in transiting, Uh, and providing transit services, communications, to those who are passing by, if you will, or those who are interested in moving across the sea, but also we're interested in providing services of those who have basically uh, located themselves in and around the moon in order to be able to relay those services back. We're capable if data, for example, has to traverse that sea. Our principal mission is to basically aid in essentially their ability to get data from the lunar surface to the surface of the Earth, then and integrated into the terrestrial networks. But it's a fairly simple business plan. So uh, you then get into back to the geography. How do you do that across 240,000 miles? We're situated in what we consider a really interesting location because it can serve as not only a transition or transient service provider, but also it can serve the needs of those who are on the moon or orbiting around the moon as a basically supporting service provider. Because we're not at the moon, we're actually 40,000 miles closer to the Earth. And in fact, we often point out to the fact that if this was some kind of a cartoon, you could put an astronaut with a big sign on our satellite saying last connectivity for 200,000 miles for those who are around the moon. The point is, is that we're that rest stop We're that one location, that last place to get a latte or a coffee before you head back to Earth. But we're also that one location to stop, take a breath and reorient yourselves before you cover that last 40,000 miles, which is your basically insertion into lunar orbit and also onto the lunar surface. So that's what kind of cislunar geographically and operationally uh, means to us. I would say it is different than and beginning to be much different in terms of how space agencies are defining it, because they're now even splitting the world into deep space, which used to be everything outside of basically geo to now uh, near space, 
which is out to 2 million kilometers from the Earth. And then everything beyond near space is now deep space. Now, that sounds technically interesting, except for commercial folks who deal with NASA, particularly NASA now has, uh, as a matter of policy, said we're now extending reliance on commercial services through the near space, which means that commercial now is a policy preference that NASA will buy from commercial providers first before building infrastructure themselves, except where mission requirements uh, dictate that. And that they will still, however, continue to do work like with JPL and others, past the near space into asteroid and Mars for the time being. We're in the middle of an evolution here, which is you've got your foot basically off the shoreline, and now you're in the cislunar sea, if you will. And then someday it'll be Mars. And that that near Earth space is now going to be extended further out into what would be uh, our solar system. So we had a communication capability between the Earth and the moon back in the Apollo days. But obviously, communications have evolved significantly since the uh, single S-band transponder used in that era. Why is it so important to now have this kind of infrastructure closer to the moon? Well, you're going to have more complex systems. Uh, I think if you break, first of all, communications down into two large service areas. One is connectivity. The Apollo program and programs since the Apollo program that are not only in the deep space network, but also in this lunar area, primarily government is looking at connectivity. We've got to have 24-7 connectivity. It's got to be available so we can basically provide tracking, telemetry, and control to those spacecraft as they traverse that sea, if you will. That's low kilobit stuff and maybe at the most megabit stuff. And I will use kilobits, as we all know the reference. Uh, nobody wants kilobits on their mobile phone. Nobody wants it on their surface. They want gigabit service if they can get it, and they'll live with it and grumble about it if it's megabits. That's that's not the way the NASA Deep Space Program and other programs like it work. Uh, they need the service, but it is low throughput in part because of the space weight and power requirement to put more technology on these small systems that are going out into deep space. So that would be enough if all we were doing was visiting the moon and then coming back. But if in fact you're not only visiting the moon, but also intending to stay, uh, to develop it in an industrial sense, in a habitation sense, et cetera, you're gonna need a different kind of communications. And that's based on content, content that requires significant amount of data. Now we're looking at your the surface you have and the handset you have here when you're looking at you know, uh, Instagram photos or you're gaming or you're doing video work. All that is driven by one word, content. Now, the value of the content is based on what you're buying as a, a consumer. When it relates to the moon, content has a great deal to do with what the commercial company, particularly, or even the, spa the space agency is trying to retrieve from the lunar surface. You know, for example, analyzing lunar surface for water, analyzing it for materials and taking that analysis and not sending it back to Earth, but in fact, sending the results, meaning data, meaning content back to Earth much more efficient way to uh, essentially develop a market. As you develop the market with more content, you need more bandwidth. We all know that. And the more band there's never enough bandwidth. So you've got two schools here. You have one is the connectivity school, and then the other one is the content school. 
the space agencies, for reasons I mentioned, are really built around connectivity, but the commercial sector builds around content because that's the only way they pay for what they're doing on the lunar surface. And whether you're videoing and sending video tracks back on drone races on the moon, believe me, don't laugh at that because that's actually that's actually contemplated uh, or you're doing commercials to send back to the Earth to have rebroadcast commercials that were live generated on the lunar surface. I mean, Americans and Europeans are really good about building value in the content. And then when you translate it either into packaged content or else you put it into something that want to watch, which is eyeballs, which clicks and advertisers pay for. That's not in the province of the space agencies. That's in the province of the commercial sector. And they have figured out, they've broken the code, that if I can get megabit and gigabit throughput at 40 megabit uh, per second channels, if I can do streaming, if I can also expand that to actually do IoT and robotics at some point as I build more infrastructure on the, on the moon, I can pay for this experience. I can also get a return on my investment, and therefore I can attract investors to build more infrastructure. That's the future of the moon. Yeah, interesting perspective there. And who are the current players, both public and private, in the Sizzlinger area whose primary focus is on or around the moon? Public agencies are pretty easy to identify. I mean, you have NASA and the Artemis program. And Artemis is a series of uh, steps, if you will, leading to the culmination at Artemis three of landing two astronauts, a man and a woman, on the lunar surface in a habitation module where they actually have boots on the ground, so to speak. Artemis one uh, is like the early Apollo missions where it's kind of toe in the water, where they orbit the moon. You know, Artemis two is the next step getting closer and would be unmanned, and then Artemis III would in fact be essentially a manned mission, or in this case, a, a humankind mission, if you will. The supporting infrastructure that is part of Artemis goes all the way back to the HLS system, the landing system, uh, that, and you have the competition in the commercial sector between SpaceX and Blue Origin for those, as well as through uh, what would be NASA's own HLS system, uh, and then all the infrastructure that goes around it. That's a centrally focused mission working backwards to billions of dollars worth of government-funded hardware and infrastructure. Then you have ESA, the European Space Agency, which as an international partner of the Artemis program, is providing elements to Gateway. Gateway is uh, this orbiting facility. Uh, just yesterday was announced that uh, Norfolk Grumman is going to build one of the modules for Gateway. And Talos Alenia, our partner for Comstar, is also building one of the modules for Gateway. Uh, as the name implies, it is going to be orbiting the moon to provide what would be a staging area for the astronauts, also a place for the astronauts to go off the lunar surface back to Gateway if, in fact, there was an emergency or a crew recycle or some other reason. It provides logistics. It provides habitation. The orbit is not thinking of it as an orbit like a circle around the moon. It'll be more like an elliptical orbit where it'll swing into the moon, turn around the backside, and then come back out from the moon. It may not actually go to the dark side. It may stay so it has visibility on Artemis's footprint down in the South Pole all the time. Uh, and that's part of the Artemis program. ESA is a supplier to that. But more importantly, ESA is also building the communications infrastructure around the moon. It is building a program called Moonlight, 
which is an orbiting constellation around the moon, which will provide connectivity, in my sense, also content for both supporting the Artemis program, but also secondarily supporting the private sector, uh, commercial activity. They have two programs under Moonlight. One is called Pathfinder, which is with SSTL, which is a firm out of the UK. It'll be a, an elliptical orbit around the moon, a single vessel or single uh, satellite, and it'll be doing RF relay to the Earth, primarily, I believe, to uh, the UK and a large Earth station there called Goomhilly. The Moonlight program is multiple satellites. So you have the space partners providing incremental support to Artemis. So Artemis is facilities, ESA is communications and habitation modules. The Canadians are providing the robotic arm for the gateway module. So then you get to the commercial side. Now, government budgets and the time and duration to build such sophisticated infrastructure, one would think would crowd out the commercial sector. And historically, that's that's been the case. In this case, however, that's not the case. The private sector, it's basically a lunar gold rush going on right now where you have a really creative program that NASA is sponsoring called CLIPS, which is the Commercial Lander Payload Support Program, where they're an anchor tenant for commercial privately funded landers. And the first three to five years before Artemis and during Artemis is going to be driven by commercial landers. Now, these landers are consist of multiple payloads, private sector payloads, including government payloads for research, but also private sector payloads to do those drone races I mentioned earlier or make those commercials, as I mentioned. This is where people who are really want to get into this can get into it for about a million dollars a kilogram. And so they essentially are building what would be business cases that can ride on these landers, do something bespoke, something unique, have the thrill of doing it. And at the same time, hopefully are reimbursed for it and make money doing it. So you've got these massive billion dollar government budgets to do one simple thing. And that's to basically get a man and a woman on the moon in a habitation and to and to show that we've returned. And then you have these lander programs, which are really very small relative to funding. And yet there's a they're building what would be the base of the commercial pyramid because there's so many of them and so many that want to that are in line to continue to go and grow that they're becoming the commercial base at the end of say 2028 2029 i don't know what happens after artemis 3 i don't know how you know what we're going to do but ironically we've got business cases that are being presented to us for their demand on communications that go into 2035 and so you're seeing the commercial sector is encouraged by artemis that's great but they're going on their own in a small, compact, simple way. And from our, our business standpoint, from a data standpoint, they're our future. It's not Artemis and connectivity. It's content originating with the landers and ultimately going into industrial development. Hmm. Interesting. So that's kind of like spurring you on there, but then there's already foresight beyond that. Yeah. Cool. yeah. In our business case, the first five years of Comstar, our primary service uh, is landers, landers, and more landers. And really what we're talking about are their customers, the payloads. Around year four or five in that period, the first robotics are going to start to be deployed. And the robotics meaning separately from the lander self-contained robotic activity, but actually robotics to do industrial development. 
And industrial development could be something as simple as not only looking for water, but also looking at subterranean activity like lava tubes to see if they, in fact, serve as decent sites for habitation, uh, also communications networks, et cetera. When you get into robotics, our first five years, we deemed the, the, lunar, the moon as basically a megabit, gigabit market from a standpoint of data relay and have to be capable of carrying that kind of bandwidth in the next five years. It's a petabyte market and petabyte meaning just you just look on the earth. How much does IOT suck up in terms of bandwidth down here? And then just look at what that concentration of activity is going to be in locations on the lunar surface. So you're seeing an evolving, sophisticated industrial development that is, is starting to materialize by independent companies, not by government driving it, but by independent companies following their nose that habitation may be a function of government, but industrial development could in fact be robotics driven by the private sector. And we need bandwidth to be able to do that. And that's really where Comstar's validation was, is that middle five years, we've got to build a satellite system that's up there for 15 years. It can not only handle the landers and also the robotics, but then the actual industrial, the day-to-day industrial cache, compute, and store of data like we have here on the Earth. And uh, that means you got to build it for year 14 in capacity, as opposed to building it in year one, where you have basically kilobit and megabit relays, and then expect to put another satellite somewhere as the market grows. So it's a, it's pretty exciting stuff to see it on the commercial side. That's great. Could you give a brief background on the inspiration behind Comstar's founding? Yeah, the uh, Laserlight had worked on a project um, uh, for NASA back in 2019 on deep space networks and particularly on on, uh, data relay networks. Uh, We'd worked with our partner, Atlas Space Operations. Uh, They uh, operate ground stations uh, uh, for NASA and for the Air Force. And so we were looking at an ecosystem on how you can basically relay. Uh, in this case, it would be relaying in the uh, Leo, Geo, or Mio environment around the Earth. Uh, in looking at that, we looked out deeper into uh, into what would be space. And so we went into what then was referred to as deep space or DSN, the deep space network. So in looking at the the DSN. Uh, we realized that with Artemis and with ESA's plans, there was a gap. And that gap was was uh, basically uh, trying to make the jump between around the moon or on the moon directly to large Earth stations on the, on the Earth. These big, huge uh, 13 meter, 20 meter dish stations that you, you have in your, your head, how they look. Uh, they're uh, usually sprinkled around sunny places like Hawaii and Australia and Chile and South Africa, and then they connect to fiber and then move all the traffic up into uh, whoever's looking for it. By putting something in this gap, which happens to be L1, Lagrangian point one, there was nobody there. And so we thought that that's an opportunity. Uh, if we put a relay system here, first of all, uh, what advantages would we have doing that? or anybody have doing that. Uh, number two is, is there a demand for it? And then number three is, what's the cost gonna be? And who's gonna vend it? Uh, in about a year of work, we validated that 
there were no plans and still aren't for NASA to build and deploy anything at that location. So there wasn't a competitive concern. Number two is we checked with ESA and ESA said, no, we're around the moon and we would welcome a relay if someone decided to put something there. So, okay, there is a potential demand side validation. Three, we found a fabulous supplier of the type of satellite we wanted in Talos Selenia. And then number four and number five is we essentially went through the process of how the design would be at a high level. So by June of 2020, when we announced it, we already had well over 18 months in, in thinking about it. We created a separate company because it's not the same as LaserLight. LaserLight is a, um, a medium Earth orbit satellite that deals with data that originates on the Earth and terminates on the Earth. So we just were, we're like a, a submarine cable in in near in uh, you know in space but it has the ability to see comstar therefore it has the ability potentially with some design rework to relay comstar uh into the laser light system especially optical and move it around the earth without having to have more than one comstar so uh the idea has been since validated by the customer demand study um there is one other there is one other commercial firm that is i'd say in our area physical area which is l1 which is aquarian uh aquarian has stated an interest in being a relay satellite for um say for example the web telescope uh which is more uh, government dod civil science we're oriented toward commercial in fact we don't have any revenue projected in our budgets uh, for for government service, we only have it projected for commercial, and we're able to balance that budget and get an ROI uh, just off the commercial demand. You uh, sent me uh, some literature with the diagram on how the system works, and you you said earlier it's a simple system, but it actually looks pretty complex on how it works. The the best way to think of it is from the lunar surface or around the moon to the Earth. Think of it that way first. You've got no matter what the platform is, a lander or an orbiting spacecraft in, in and around the, uh, the moon, or quite candidly in CIS lunar that can see line of sight, can see Comstar. Comstar can receive that signal. All right, so that's a point-to-point line of sight connection, okay? Then from that, Comstar, depending on what the customer wants in terms of uh, do you want improvement on the signaling, what we call managed services, we then relay that data packet or that RF signaling to where they want it to go. If they want it to go directly to a ground station, like Atlas, then it would go direct to a ground station, one of Atlas's stations, and it would do that line of sight. And the reason for the confusion as you were talking about is you were looking at a multiple number of different ways that it could connect instead of the more simple way that it'll go directly to a ground station, or if it's optical, it could go to laser light, or if it's optical, it could go to an optical ground station bypassing laser light, or it could go to a geo that has an antenna that could receive it like TDRS and relay it, or it could go to a LEO that in fact could relay it. The whole point is interoperability with what would be the frequency, in other words, the spectrum, or the optics. That is not unlike, in fact, that is exactly how the world optical transport network works. In other words, 
you're connected to the internet and you've got an ISP supplier, you're probably writing their infrastructure, connected then to somebody else's infrastructure who's moving you along over a longer distance in the, in the wide area network that's connecting you to somebody else that's moving you to a data center that's getting your data out of it or your Netflix movie or whatever and then bringing it back to you. It is something that people who don't do this for a living take for granted, okay? But when you put it on paper, all you see are these lines going everywhere, and essentially, think of it as this, end to end. And everything else in the middle is just basically standard uh, software routing between the endpoints. But the important part to the consumer is, if I've got a laptop, I've got a an API, or in this case, what would be some form of a web access software on my laptop, I want to see that my lander data, I want to look at it. I should only have to basically click on that icon, connect and make a service request, and it'll go all the way up to that lander, that payload, that'll open up and it'll show you your data. You can retrieve it or you just look at it and basically leave it on an end-to-end basis. How many different handoffs you have along the way may add a little bit to latency, but more importantly, it gets you there in a software sense, up in the earth, about 1.5 seconds. So you're about 1500 milliseconds, you know, faster time than take a, you know, a drink of coffee while you're basically waiting for it to load or download. So that's the explanation of that busy chart that I sent you. So uh, as envisioned, and you, you said there might be some latency in some cases, but as envisioned, the service will be as reliable and uninterrupted as earth systems of this type are. That's right. In fact, hopefully it'll be better because the service level agreements, remember, you're originating your traffic. You should have a a good connection through, say, Lumen to what would be the uplink, wherever you're going for the uplink. When you get to the uplink, most of the terrestrial uh, transport layer risk or quality of service is over, and now you're going up. Now you're in the free space, and then you're, you're, you're on your way to Comstar. At that point, a lot of things that interfere with ground networks is over with. You don't have to worry about misutility and somebody's cut your fiber or something like that. You're, you're on your way. Your data packet's on, on its way, and it's, it's loaded into Comstar. And then Comstar, in turn, is relaying it to the lunar surface and, or the lander or the orbiting spacecraft. So it becomes a more efficient because there's no atmosphere, and so it should be a more efficient system. In fact, reduce the space aspects of it to what would be common practice so that it's not, you know, the result is space. Obviously, you're seeing all the stuff that's coming off the lunar surface, but the actual practice isn't any harder than what we're doing right now. So uh, that's all very similar to what we have on Earth. Now, how about in developing a cislunar orbiter like Comstar-1, how does that differ from like a more traditional satellite orbiting Earth? Is it the same or are there like non-standard trajectories and different orbital mechanics at play? How, what kind of factors and variables are there to consider? Our particular orbit is at L1, Lagrangian point one. And when you use the word orbit, everyone in their mind thinks of circular. You know, you're going around the Earth or you're going around the moon. You're really more in in what would be more like an area placement where you're using some fuel. But L1 happens to be in a unique position where it's a, it's in space terms. It's a fairly stable environment where it's almost fixed. 
you're not totally fixed. You have to do some maneuvering, but uh, it's not a, quote, orbit. It's really more like, you know, a fixed point. The stability of it is good for a lot of aspects, particularly for comms, because you want to avoid a lot of movement around. You're doing line of sight from the moon to the earth and the earth to the moon. So the more you move around, you really have to make sure that you're accommodating what would be line of sight. The orbits around the moon are trickier. The moon is wobbly. And that's a nice space term. That's not my term. <laughs> uh, it's wobbly. And the best example I can give you is take it. I'm not an astrophysicist or a geologist, but uh, a NASA guy explained to me this one time, took pity on me and said, think of a bowling ball with a big lead interior ball inside it. So it's a ball with a ball inside it. And that ball inside it is offset from the middle. So it looks like a bowling ball until you roll it. And then it does this. Whoa, 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 whoa. OK, well, that wobbliness creates a ripple effect. We get the benefit out of it. Then the moon's wobbliness generates tide flow down here. So it also generates unstable orbits around the moon. So when you go around the moon, you're orbiting a wobbly thing to begin with. And then you have to maintain your station. And so I think NASA and ESA and the Japanese did a, a series of uh, working group studies, which are publicly available, that show the best three or four orbits around the moon. And those are, are, are generally at, you know, like an equatorial orbit and uh, a displaced orbit, a halo orbit or helo orbit, which is an elliptical orbit. They require fuel. And so you're burning more fuel to station keep than you would if you were sitting at some place like L1. So in their managing as they move, they also, because you're moving in an orbit, your field of view or field of regard on the lunar surface changes as you cross, you traverse the moon. So there, there are places in the moon you're not connected to until you get around to it, unless you put enough satellites, three maybe, at a certain altitude, that you then get full coverage of the moon. So if you're a single satellite, you can do an elliptical orbit where you can run right at the moon, go around the dark side and run away. But that means when you're on the dark side, you're not on the lit side. So whoever is your customer on the lit side is not getting service. So you need one satellite going in, one satellite going around the dark side and one satellite leaving. Very similar to XM and Sirius satellite radio here on Earth. They have an elliptical orbit around the Earth, and they're always connected because they have three satellites generally that run at or around or back, back side of the Earth. So you really build these orbits, or should, based on what you're trying to accomplish, and essentially where uh, those you want to provide service are going to be located. NASA is going to be, right now, is going to be in the South Pole. South Pole is a little dicey to see all of the South Pole from L1. Got to, yeah, and that's really going to it's going to come down to some mechanics as to where the best position in the L1 vicinity would be to see that. But then again, commercially, they want to go in the equator. They want to go in the Sea of Sins up toward the North Pole. They want to go different places, partly because they have a sense there are rare materials, rare earth. They're places to make money. So those who are, who are looking at these orbits You've got to work backwards from who your customer is going to be, where they're going to be located, because once you're in one of those orbits, you're kind of tied to that, you know, for a period, a fixed period of time. We're we're at L1 for 15 years. Now, the Comstar satellite, you asked me about what modifications need to be made to it. 
there are more radiation that you have to basically protect against uh, when you get past the Van Allen belt. There are other trades relative to antennas and also your solar panels that you have to put on the satellite. It is not a brand new satellite you're building. It is a commercial off-the-shelf satellite that you're improving. Yes. Uh, you're, you're hardening where you need to harden, uh, but you're not having to go and build a bespoke satellite. That saves you significant CapEx dollars. So not reinventing the wheel. <laughs> no, in fact, you really want, on the commercial side, you really don't want to do that. You, you want to find something. Well, like I said, just even on the orbits, you want to find something that meets what would be your business case and work backwards from that. Otherwise, if you find I got a fabulous business case and there's no such satellite that can serve it, you don't have a business case. That makes sense. So you'd mentioned that there might be some maneuvering. Is the idea that uh, Comstar One could be serviced when needed, like refueling for maneuvers or other maintenance? One of the really interesting things about what I would call both government and business ideas is this idea of both uh, space tugs that then uh, are capable of moving what would be, let's call it value-added services to satellites like Comstar One. A space tug that can move additional fuel, that's been demonstrated now, uh, satellites have been refueled, that clearly is an opportunity. Space tugs can move uh, satellites from one area to another, maybe improve where they happen to be situated. Maybe maybe you don't really want to be looking at the South Pole. You really, for customers, want to move your orbit. A space tug could help you do that. What my personal opinion is, is that being around the moon is exciting and sexy, if I can use that phrase, but it may not be the most efficient place to do logistics. The place to do logistics would be offset from the influence of the wobbly aspects of the moon and being someplace that's stable like L1 or L2. And in those stable places, build logistics hubs. So you have fueling stations, you have tugs where you're not flying a tug out there and then flying it back. You're actually residing tugs out there. You're providing other value added services like P&T, which is positioning, navigation and timing so that spacecraft transiting the Cislunar Sea can actually get constant upgrades and, and updates as to their, you know, within a meter or two of where they are relative to where they are going. You can provide tracking, tagging, and logging, kind of a traffic control sense by watching traffic go by. You know, you're a truck stop and everything is going by. So you, you really are building what would be instead of just this single activity there, which is data relay, you're also building logistics, fueling, transportation uh, that are all now relieved of the weight of having to get off the earth. Uh, storage, if you need storage for one reason or another, if you need rescue, if there's a failure and Gateway has an emergency, you can run to the rescue and you become really this response area. Add the Space Force into it and their new interest in CisLunar, their desire to basically have a, a kind of a watchtower environment. I think L1's got and L2 have a tremendous amount of potentiality for that, but they all have one thing in common, no matter what they are, they need comms. So we may start relaying for landers and robotics, but if we're providing stable comms in CisLunar itself, sort of like that one cell tower that everybody can see and connect to and has enough capacity to do that, then things will gravitate around us. 
And uh, and then I think that's the future. Uh, and I'm, when I say the future, I mean within 10 years. Uh, and remember, we're there for 15. Could a similar configuration like Comstar 1 be considered for other locations deeper in space or other Lagrange points that like supporting other forays into space exploration, like maybe even Mars? Yeah, I think the one thing that's unique about, and we say it in our public material about Comstar 1, is that the payload itself is going to be really unique. It is not going to be a standard relay where RF comes in and RF goes out. Instead, it is going to have the ability to run as a hybrid integrated payload where you have RF and optical laser comms, if you will, working together and working together off of what the customer requirement is. I want to do, we have a phrase called E to O, electronics, RF to O, to optical. So I can do E to O, I can do O to E, and I can do it based on what the customer requires. To build this payload and build it in such a way that it operates on this particular satellite, it's not a jump, it's not a giant leap to take that payload and turn it into a satellite unto itself. So instead of it needing the mothership the payload fits into, it could in fact be a payload unto itself with its own power supply, its own solar panels, its own antennas, and then send it out to say, L2, L4, L5. There's some light of sight restrictions. But one of the things we learned in the deep space study we did, the key to connectivity is satellite relay. The key to space communications networking is infrastructure, multiple infrastructure. And so the real challenge would be here, how do you make a, how do you make a satellite, in this case, think of the payload, something that is cheaper, that is capable of going out what would be toward the asteroid belt. And as it goes out, it's capable of relaying from other missions that are already out there, line of sight, back to it. Or, but it also is capable of relaying to other, other Comstars, Comstar 2, 3, and 4, that happen to be offset. And then you're creating a network. And then those network all have one thing in common. They have to be line of sight of each other, but they also can be uh, they can be around the moon. They can be out beyond the moon. They can be in uh, what would be the asteroid belt. You have to change the antennas. You have to change. In other words, you have to build a bespoke to that particular requirement. Your inner your uh, optical uh, inner satellite telescopes would have to be a little different, et cetera. But the idea, the reason we called it Comstar One is because we expect it to be more Comstars. That's awesome. Just one final question. Are there any significant challenges or hurdles in making Comstar one a success as it's envisioned? Oh, I think in fairness to your audience, the, the challenge is always raise your money. You know, this is not a government funded program. So you have to present a business case to the private market that first of all makes sense. Now, there's the old the old expression, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And if you can solve the problem cost effectively with a quantifiable user base that can be validated, you're generally a fundable project. So we brought that into this. What is the problem we're trying to solve? We're trying to solve the problem of trying to go all the way from the moon to the earth without the ability to essentially improve signaling, improve throughput, and add more security on a stable point. Okay, well, that's one. Is there a user community? 
yes, we identified that back in September and a user community that was not dependent on government budgets. So we segregated government out of that discussion to look just could commercial support this. Number three, is it commercial off the shelf or do you have to build something that's never flown before? The answer is it's COTS. It's commercial off the shelf. So by doing that, you're de-risking what would be the financial aspects of it. But you still have to go out and raise your money. We're really pleased over the interest in the company, both from a financial standpoint, but also on a debt side where we know where our financing is going to come from. We have a strategy relative to the equity side, what I call follow on equity, whether it be public or private. And we're out in the market now doing our what would be our series A round, which is the one that really lights the rest of the candle. But we've got strong LOIs on what the infrastructure is going to cost. I think that until funded, you're not funded. Once funded, then you have to do your next funding round and then your next funding round until your revenue is coming in. And then once your revenue is coming in, you're fully funded with, you know, associated with revenues. So those are the financial challenges associated with a deal like this. Operationally, it's a COTS system. It is the work's been done relative to the regulatory agencies so that it has applications in for its spectrum. It has applications in for its orbit, the ITU. So that's done. It has a very supportive regulatory authority. I mean, like the FCC or Ofcom, in our case, Ofcom. So we've done this before. We know the things that kill companies and we know the things that companies have to do to avoid basically failure. And I think on Comstar, it is, uh, I think we've hit all the markers on it. But I would tell you, without Artemis and without SpaceX and without just what happened the other day with, uh, with Richard Branson and what will happen with Bezos, without this whole desire of private equity to get into space and the markets are getting into it, I can recall a time, and I'm, this is my fifth satellite company, I can remember a time going in talking about raising money for satellite companies and some very main big banks were saying, we don't do that. Uh, that's not something we know how to basically access risk over. That has fundamentally changed, led by Morgan Stanley and the analysts there who see this as a trillion dollar industry. But what's cool is this trillion dollar industry is not just low Earth orbit now. It's not just imagery and Earth observation and Starlink and OneWeb and all that. It's now including CisLunar. And most recently, CisLunar, and people are just learning, what is CisLunar? And what does that to do with the moon? And is there a real commercial opportunity outside what the government is doing? And within the last six months, particularly what we've experienced, the answer is yes. And there is real excitement about bypassing what would be low Earth orbit and going deeper. And that to us is really cool. Well, uh, Bob, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we can't wait to see how the Comstar One project progresses and uh, ultimately supports commercial and public lunar aspirations in the not too distant future. Well, listen, I appreciate the time and hopefully it was helpful and uh, stay tuned. We'll keep you posted on our progress. That's great. That concludes this episode of the Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support Space Foundation. On all these outlets and more, it's Space Foundation's mission to be a gateway to education, information, and collaboration for space exploration and space-inspired industries that drive the global space ecosystem. Here at Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.